Good morning. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. But first, let's catch up with some of the day's top headlines. Lawmakers remain divided over a future coronavirus relief bill. Democrats want to maintain the $3 trillion HEROES Act legislation passed back in May. Some Senate Republicans are preparing to walk away from negotiations. And the White House is exploring possible executive action. Facebook and Twitter are taking action against President Trump. Citing misinformation relating to the coronavirus, Facebook deleted a post from the president and Twitter temporarily blocked his campaign account. And Vice President Joe Biden will accept his party's nomination for president virtually from Delaware, effectively ending all major appearances at the in-person Democratic convention in Milwaukee later this month. Roughly 5,000 people in Lebanon are injured, more than 135 are dead, after a massive warehouse explosion on Tuesday in the port area of Beirut. Investigators believe the explosion was fueled by thousands of tons of ammonium nitrate that had been sitting inside the warehouse for six years. After the explosion, Al Jazeera was one of the first news outlets on the ground. Survivors told Al Jazeera how angry they are. This was Lebanon's Hiroshima. We trusted them with our money, our souls, our lives, and they betrayed us. Why are they still in power? They should all resign. We only have God now. Their day will come. This tragedy couldn't come at a worse time. Lebanon is in the middle of an economic, political, and health crisis. The BBC offers some clarity on the country's issues. Lebanon's economy has been in crisis now for a while. Their debt was one of the highest in the world, and its central bank was paying back its lenders in what the BBC describes as a massive Ponzi scheme. Unemployment was hovering at 25 percent, and with nearly a third of the country living below the poverty line, the government took drastic steps to shore up foreign reserves, taxing gas and tobacco. It even tried to tax WhatsApp usage. Mm. So you can understand why tens of thousands of people stormed the streets last October. Their protests led to the prime minister's resignation. And that was all before the coronavirus reached the country. When it did, things got worse. For the first time ever, Lebanon defaulted on its foreign debt. The new prime minister is warning of a, quote, major food crisis. Just last week, Save the Children reported that half a million children are going hungry in Beirut. The country had been in talks with the IMF about a loan, but those talks recently stalled. Then Tuesday's blast. Early reports suggest up to 300,000 people could be left homeless because of it. The explosion also destroyed Lebanon's largest port. Now, this is a big deal because Lebanon brings in a good amount of its food and aid through that port. The city's governor says about half the city was destroyed or damaged in the explosion. And the cost to rebuild could be anywhere from three to five billion dollars. The coronavirus pandemic is putting the spotlight on U.S. governors. They're on the front lines of the pandemic response. They're the ones who are making major decisions like when to shut down their states, when to reopen, how to keep their constituents safe. And over the past few months, we've seen how the coronavirus has changed the role of governor. Politico has a series of articles out about the intersection of federal and state power. 
The first installment describes how governors are normally judged by their actions, by their ability to get things done. Mm. Well, the pandemic is throwing them for a loop, and it's put all the promises they made and the agendas they set while they were running for office on the back burner. Yeah, Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker tells Politico he didn't think his number one job in office was ever going to be keeping people alive. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who used to be a Goldman Sachs executive, then he became ambassador to Germany. He says this is the hardest thing he's ever done. The way Politico sees it, depending on how a governor handles the pandemic, this very moment could make or break their political career. And for Mm -hmm. people like Maryland Governor Larry Hogan or New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, Political points to high approval ratings that would make a future presidential run irresistible. But others have seen their popularity plummet. And Politico says those governors won't have much political goodwill to cash in on when budget negotiations in their states get started. Yeah, but this article also serves as a warning for any governors who might be thinking about taking a premature victory lap. Just because your state looks good right now, it doesn't mean an outbreak might not flare up in the future. I mean, just look at California Governor Gavin Newsom's pandemic response. An early success story can quickly turn into a statewide nightmare. The coronavirus is here to stay. That's the message from Sarah Zhang, who wrote about it for The Atlantic. She explains the virus has spread to every continent in the world, aside from Antarctica. It's infected more than 16.5 million people. And although the pandemic may eventually end, experts say the virus will continue to circulate globally. So the question isn't really, what will the future look like after COVID-19, but rather, How will our future be shaped by COVID-19? One infectious disease researcher at Harvard told Zhang, it all depends on the nature of immunity against the virus, its strength and duration. So if immunity lasts only a few months, we could see large outbreaks with smaller waves to follow. If, however, immunity lasts longer, say a year or two, We could see peaks every other year. And Zhang writes, depending on that immunity, one vaccine might not be enough. We might need a booster shot every year or every other year, just like another annual flu shot. Or in a best case scenario, it could be just like other coronaviruses, a virus that circulates in humans regularly without most people really noticing. Seventy-five years ago today, the United States dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. The bomb and its impacts ultimately killed as many as 140,000 people. The Washington Post has a story of an American who was in Hiroshima on the day of that blast, a day that still haunts him. And I'm not sure how long after the bomb exploded that uh, I came to. When I came to, I was under a considerable amount of debris. Uh, everything has fallen down on top of me. Howard Kakita was only seven years old at the time. He and his little brother were staying with their grandparents in Japan while their parents were back in the United States. And Howard tells the Washington Post he remembers seeing the vapor trails in the sky from a bomber plane flying ahead. Next thing he knew, he was knocked out under rubble. He dug himself out and he saw that his grandparents and his brother were miraculously alive, too. And they fled the city, passing fires and dead bodies. Just horrific scenes. Back in the United States, the government forced Howard's parents to live in an internment camp. It was years before they were able to bring Howard and his brother to the U.S. 
But the transition was hard for them. No one in his family spoke about the bomb or the camps, and he had nightmares and woke up screaming often. Howard is 82 years old now. He says he feels a responsibility to talk about his experience publicly, especially since he's one of the youngest survivors who remembers the day of the bombing. He doesn't want the details to get lost in history. You can find all these stories and more on the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of this week's audio stories. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.